Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week we're turning to one of the great issues of our time, if not the greatest issue of our time, net zero. We wanted to turn to this subject given the fact that the 28th UN Climate Change Conference, known to most people as COP28, is currently taking place in Dubai of all places. Now, the first of these conferences was held in Berlin in 1995, and six of the first 10 were held in Europe. And even today, there's no doubt that it's Europe, including the UK, that is trying to lead this global energy transition. So the question we're going to ask this week is, from where does this European ambition to be the first continent to be carbon dioxide free come, and can it possibly succeed? The decision to hold the 28th annual UN meeting in the United Arab Emirates has been controversial. You may have been covering it, but the media has failed to make political change. Politics has failed us. As scientists have been warning for so long, we are seeing alarming tipping points being reached. I've been thinking about these issues for a long time. This is not actually about politics. Right? This is not about the politics. This is about doing what's right for the country in the long term. So, Helen, I was chatting to a good friend of mine, Charlie Cooper, who's Politico's uh, climate change correspondent, who's in Dubai at the moment, about what's going on at COP. And it it is fascinating to sort of dig down into it. I mean, the overall ambition is to stabilize global temperatures at 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. And there's a kind of agreement on that. And then how you get there starts to then divide up the world between developed and non-developed countries or developing countries between Europe, the United States, China, India. Everyone has a, a different focuses on this and different, uh, they'd come at it from different places. So the, the big debate, as I understand it at this conference, is between phasing out fossil fuels entirely, that means, or phasing down fossil fuels. And this is complicated by terms like abate, whether you can abate fossil fuels, which means, you know, you can use fossil fuels, but take them out of the atmosphere using things like carbon capture and storage, but essentially new technologies. And you've got in this, you've got Europe, or certainly the uh, president of the commission, von der Leyen, who's stood out front. And she has said she wants to phase out 
unabated fossil fuels. So, I mean, that is the most ambitious of all the global leaders, it seems. And that even seems, Helen, to have divided Europe. It's not clear that everybody is on the same page, even within Europe. No, I mean, if you look at on that just score alone is in her speech, she said she wanted fossil fuel consumption peaking in 2030. Yeah. And that's ambitious as well. That's on the ambitious side. That's, I would say, very much on the ambitious side. And I would, it's not clear that all European governments could sign up to that, particularly given the place of coal in generating electricity in a number of European including countries, including Germany. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, a lot of this, Helen, comes from this ambition that the UN has set down uh, to reach these targets by mid-century, in quotes, as they've described it. And different parts of the world have interpreted that mid-century commitment differently. So in Europe, we've interpreted that as meaning 2050, sort of understandably. But in India, they've interpreted it to mean 2070, and in China, 2060. So you can see already the different push and pull factors there. But Europe, again, right at the front, why is it that they are trying to be right out front on this? Well, I think there's two different things that we should talk about here, Tom. The first of them is like really like the history from like the 1990s, mm. where we can see Europe collectively and to some extent individually, particularly a number of European governments, notably like the German government, trying to get ahead in saying climate change is an incredibly serious issue and we must be acting uh, in order, we must show that we are taking this extremely seriously. So if we go back to those conferences in the 1990s, one of them in the late 90s produces the Kyoto Protocol, mm-hmm. which was the most significant then of the uh, agreements. That was the iconic one. Yeah. And-, and China is not part of it really because it's been treated, well, at least it's been treated as a developing country at that point. Mm. And the obligations that came with Kyoto were for developed countries. Right. The United States signed it, or the Clinton administration, I should say, signed mm. the agreement. But then it was very clear that the United States Senate wasn't going to ratify it. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that many of these senators used was that it didn't impose any obligations on China. Mm. So I think for quite some time is the Europeans thought of themselves as, if you like, the yeah. upholders of the Kyoto pr- Protocol. Do you think that's like a, a moral thing? Like a, this is how you, we see ourselves in Europe, more progressive than the United States? Or is that... Is there something kind of raw geopolitical happening under the surface? Well, I think that it's certainly true that this became something that was of, if you like, I'm not sure I would use the word moral, but it's partially moral, symbolic importance of like Europe saying on this issue, we are the leaders. And Mm. remember that although it was during the still the time of the Clinton presidency that the Kyoto Protocol wasn't ratified by the Senate and was very clear it wasn't going to be ratified. Mm. Actually, the withdrawal of it, the formal withdrawal of it, came under the Bush administration, George W. Bush. So it kind of became a symbol of everything that a lot of Europeans didn't like about Mm. the United States under George W. Bush. And if you then look, I think, at the next decade, so the first decade of this century, we can see the European Union moving to a carbon pricing system, the first large one in Mm. the world in like 2005. China doesn't introduce one until I think it's 2021. It could be wrong then on my date. The United States doesn't have one. It doesn't go about this issue of decarbonisation in that particular um, way. You can also see a big commitment uh, manifest by the end of that decade, that's really, as we can talk about later, running to trouble into the 2010s. 
of wanting Europe to be the center of solar panel manufacturing right. uh, production. So th- there's absolutely no doubt that the Europeans are taking climate change very seriously in its own terms. If you look at Germany, you've got the commitment made um, by the Social Democrat and Green government that came into power in 19. 19- 98, really to push ahead with decarbonizing the electricity sector in um, Germany. But I, I don't think we can separate this out, which I think is what you were getting at mm. with your question, from the difficulties that fossil fuels cause European countries. Yeah. Because historically, a number of European countries obviously were very well um, blessed, if we can use that word, with coal, but they were very disadvantaged by oil. And in the second half of the 20th century, when there was more domestic oil and gas production from the North Sea, that benefited some countries around the North Sea, but not everybody. And it particularly didn't benefit the Germans. So I think in that sense, if we say, why is it the case that that, that Germany was front and centre in Europe in the energy transition, and Europe itself then, Germany is the most powerful state within it, was in that position, we have to think about in terms of the existing energy regime as well, yeah, I as mean, well as the commitment to the climate, yeah, or addressing a, climate change, I should say. In essence, if Europe was, you know, sat on top of as much oil as Saudi Arabia, it probably wouldn't be in the lead of the global push mm. to decarbonize its economies. But it's also partly an industrial strategy to try and win back some autonomy or control over the sources of energy that you need in your economy. So not being reliant on someone else. It is, but I think that's complicated because if you take the German case, then two things, if you like, went hand in hand, particularly actually under that red-green government that was led by Gerhard Schröder, which was deepen the gas relationship with Russia and be committed to the energy transition. Is that just realism though? Just knowing that you can't get to where you want to get to in terms of decarbonization in time. So you just have to accept that you're dependent on Russia. I think that there's several different things going on here, partly that. But I think something that has changed, which is pretty significant, is the way in which gas has been perceived in the energy transition. So until really quite recently, I'd say maybe the last three or four years, perhaps four or five years, Gas was seen as a part of the energy transition, particularly where the generation of electricity was concerned, because mm-hmm. particularly for those countries, and obviously Germany fitted into this, that was very coal-centered mm. in terms of generating electricity. Then shifting from coal to gas was a good thing. Yeah. And that was actually true about the, the United States. And, as in, and it was a green thing. It was the, the, because the carbon emissions of gas are significantly lower than the carbon emissions right. of coal. So I'm not sure it was entirely contradictory yeah. for the Schroeder government to say, we're doing decarbonisation and electricity and we're deepening the gas relationship with Russia. I, I think once we turn to like the 2010s and the the, the, the point when things start to move, become a lot more um, difficult for Europe, we can see that tensions start to rise in relation to that, not least because of the nuclear question and the issue of how fast uh, storage capacity for solar and wind-generated electricity is likely um, to appear. But I, I don't think it was like fundamentally contradictory no. to go down that road. I still burnt into my mind, I think, the notion that gas is somehow quite clean, certainly Mm. cleaner than coal. You know, I I don't think I'd grasped until relatively recently that it was was still considered sort of dirty energy. But I think that that's, I think it's a perception change. 
I mean, not because obviously gas is a, a fossil fuel, but I think it's really around the point in 2019, perhaps the year before, that's why I was hesitating about dates earlier, where you see United Kingdom and the European Union collectively and the most European governments within the European Union committing to what we tend to call net zero in the yeah. UK and went under the name of the Green Deal in the European Union. In That was agreed in like December 2019. And that was all about net zero with carbon emissions by 2050. Is a, That was, I think, when the turn away from gas as a bridge yeah. energy source really now happened. Now, you could argue that that was because the prospects where gas were concerned geopolitically had deteriorated by that point. And one thing, I mean... I might put on the table there is is that if you look at the way in which European governments for a long time actually even going back to the 90s had wanted Iran as an alternative gas source to Russia or at least as a complementary gas source to Russia right that that's a bit closed off once the United States in 2018 under Trump puts the sanctions back on Iran and does it in ways that makes it really difficult for the European energy companies to stay. In so again, Iran. net zero is making kind of geopolitical sense compared to what we originally had, which was, I was just looking at this in 2008, I think it was the Climate Change Act in Britain. And that was aiming for an 80% reduction. So I guess in that world, you can have gas. But once that changes under Theresa May in 2019 19. to the net zero, that by 2050, then you have to start thinking about a post-gas world, a post-all-fossil-fuels world. I mean, that's the entire point. Yeah, I mean, I think I would tell that story and say that there's two different things that have gone on by the end of the 2010s. The first of them is the realisation, probably driven by the Paris conference in 2015, mm -hmm. that the climate change targets... Uh, well, climate change ambitions and dealing with climate change are just so far off track at that point that something more radical is needed. Right. And then simultaneously, that the fossil fuel energy world in the 2010s, both in relation to oil and the fact that the world economy is so dependent for not low prices for all the decade, but for some of the decade uh, mm. anyway, on the US shale oil boom. And then the fact that it's clear that the world's oil reserves are 50% concentrated in Russia, Iran, Qatar is the order, is, is that that's not geopolitically very palatable. And the point in which the Americans are actually making it much harder for the European countries to engage with Iran, which is from like 2018, that I think intensifies the incentive to say, actually, we need to rethink what we're doing on gas. Yeah. I mean, so in a way, are we like holding down these countries' potential for now with sanctions and, and those kind of things and using Qatar and alternative sources of gas while we wean ourselves off this thing in time? And then we can just say, well, we've taken away your power. By 2050, you won't be powerful because we don't need your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but, but then we've obviously got to bring in some like serious complications here. Yeah. Because That's the theory. Yeah, because if we look at what's happened then between 2019 and now, something obviously huge has changed for the European countries where gas is concerned, and that's Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. And the fact that from June of last year, 
the Russians radically reduced the supply of gas to some most European countries, and they were directing it at that gas that was in the first instance, it was a gas that was going through the Yamal Europe pipeline, which goes like through Poland and Belarus. But then the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, the pipeline that went under the Baltic Sea. And so European countries were faced with needing to find alternative mm. supply, and that was going to mean liquid natural gas. And we can see that place where they have primarily gone, it's not the only place that they have gone for long-term contracts, is Qatar. So the German government signed a 15-year agreement with Qatar in, I think it was October or November of last year. And then in the last three months, the French, the Italians and the Dutch have also signed long-term agreements with Qatar. Right. So in that sense, gas is still actually being treated as a transition yeah. source. And, and what about the United States in this and shale gas? Well, I think that many European countries have imported more um, gas from uh, the United States than was true before Russia's invasion uh, of um, Ukraine. And if we look at it in terms of there being a, a competition in some sense between the United States and Europe mm. economically in terms of doing the energy transition, the fact that the United States has a much more secure fossil fuel energy base from which to do the energy transition is, I think, proving to be to the Americans' advantage in this. But I think we should perhaps go back a little bit and talk about the solar panels issue and bring, yeah. bring China into it. So this is a competition between Europe and the United States to lead the energy transition mm. in terms of technology, but it's actually not being won by either. It's being won by <laughs> yeah. China. Is that, yeah. I mean, that seems to be the story of our, of our time in many ways. Yeah. I mean, if we go back to the Copenhagen Climate Change Conference, which was 2009, I think that this is the point in which China really becomes a very crucial player mm. in this. And it looks like that there's a, a change of attitude in China towards the climate change question. And it's the first time I think we can really see an impulse in the United States under Obama to say, actually, we do climate change in cooperation with China. And that is important, I think, in terms of the fact that the prelude to the 2015 Paris Agreement was a bilateral agreement between China and the United States that Obama went to China uh, to sign. Now, in one sense, that was all great news from, mm. from the Europeans' point of view because they were no longer the ones who were lead trying to lead by themselves on this issue. There's much more engagement from mm -hmm. the United States and China than there'd been in the, the previous decade. But that hope, I think, that the Europeans had still had by the early 2010s that, that they could dominate essentially the industrial production of the infrastructure of the energy transition and particularly like solar panels has turned out to be nothing like what they hoped. And if we look now at the end, well, into the 2020s, then China reigns supreme in the production of solar panels. And now the United States is trying to catch up right. with the tax credit subsidy regime that's been created by the Inflation Reduction Act that in part at least came out of Biden's ambitions for a, a Green New Deal, as administration called it. But the Europeans have found that they're just be, really being left behind on that score. Can you see something similar as well, from my understanding, in um, 
production of wind turbines. Again, I think you have this idea here, or certainly I had this idea that, you know, we could have um, the reindustrialization of our East Coast in that these were the places where the wind turbines would go, but there were also places where they could be produced, you know, made and then and then um, shipped out and, and, and put in the North Sea. And actually, it turns out that we're just not making them, we're importing them. And I presume that we end up importing them from China. Well, China is less dominant in wind turbine manufacturing. I mean, the Danes have actually have done well out of um, wind turbine. So we're getting them from Denmark mostly. <laughs> I, I'm not sure about the composition of like British um, imports. I mean, what is is also true now though that the, the the big Danish company and the German company Siemens, which has also been involved in manufacturing um, wind turbines, have been in some difficulty this year with like various projects. The Danes in relation to some offshore wind projects in the United States. I think the other thing we should talk about here, though, is the metals issue. I was going to say, because they're made out of steel, right? This is yeah. about heavy heavy production. And my understanding is, in, in some way, the low-hanging fruit of climate change or net zero is decarbonizing your electric market or you know, ma- making sure your cars are electric or your boilers are electric, all those kind of things. Uh, they're difficult, but it's the low-hanging fruit. It's then when you get to things like steel production, which prove impossible, whereas perhaps other countries aren't so bothered really about of getting to net zero so they can then dominate in steel. I, I think the Chinese are... are I, mean, I, I wouldn't say... I think China are very concerned uh, about climate change and I think that they're very serious about the energy transition. In some ways, you could say that they've been much more systematic once they've right. got on to trying to do it than I think the European Union and individual European um, governments have been. I think that they bring certain advantages in terms of industrial production. Yeah. Uh, in the same way in which the United States brings advantages in terms of the size of its market and then the ability effectively to try to do the energy transition in quite a protectionist way, which mm. has come to the fore with the Inflation Reduction Act. But I think what's interesting about the actual metal components part of this story is that in many ways, Europe actually faces as a function of the geography of the continent, some of the same difficulties it faced once oil became the most important fossil fuel right. in, the, in, the, in the world in that there's not an abundance of metals in Europe in the way in which there is right. more in the Southern Hemisphere and to some extent in the United States. And if we then look at it in terms of metal mining and the processing of metals, then there already is a country that dominates and it's China and it particularly dominates the supply chains around processing. So if, if we think of, of, of the European ambition as in part being shaped by its fossil fuel energy predicament, it's partly then I would replicated by the metal predicament. Now, I don't think it's yeah. ultimately the same problem because metal can be in the long term, medium term, particularly with technological advances recycled and mm. energy can't be. But nonetheless, for the present, it creates a set of of, of difficulties that, that have got to be faced. And I think it makes leadership of the energy transition quite difficult for European countries. It just sounds like it's like it's cyclical. We've we've tried to get out in front of this issue because of a fundamental geographical problem that we have. And we've ended up back at maybe one that's not quite as acute, but in a similar problem that, that is to do with where we are in the world. You know, it's not to do with our governments or our, our politics necessarily. It's just the ground that we sit on, where we live. 
To some extent, absolutely. But I mean, I think that there is also the question of how much technology can compensate for geographical weakness yeah. in that respect. And I think that is likely to be easier with decarbonisation than it was with the fossil fuel uh, energy okay. regime. We should turn to what all this means then for Europe after the break. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome back. So we ended the first half there hinting towards the future that, that Europe has and the predicament that it finds itself. I mean, I couldn't help be struck listening to Helen about this, these sort of three giant markets that are there in the world at the moment, you know, the United States, China, and Europe. And this sort of competition between the regulatory zones and you have in the united states you have the inflation reduction act which is you know effectively industrial strategy protectionism you obviously have uh, the chinese state incredibly involved in its strategy for how you how, how they manage this uh, transition and as you were saying they seem quite systematic about it in a way that europe perhaps hasn't been but then in europe we go right the way back to the start of the episode and you were talking about the carbon pricing that Europe was the first to introduce, essentially putting a price, as I understand, on, on emissions. And now they've added to that with something called the, the carbon border, which effectively tries to adjust for the fact that if you're making it more expensive to be a, a carbon producing uh, industry in Europe, then they, they put a tax on other parts of the world, other industries that are importing into Europe, but are perhaps are not have the same protections. So that if there's an industry in China that's producing more CO2, they can't just flood the European market with uh, with steel, say. So they have to pay this carbon Well, it's not order. introduced yet. It's, I think it's 2026 that it's due to be right. introduced. And then this has dramatic implications because it has implications for the UK. For instance, we, we haven't got one ourselves, as I understand it. So immediately, we either hit the European standard. I mean, this this may be a classic story that Britain is going to have to deal with going forward. But if we don't hit the European standard, we're going to then therefore have to pay their tax. And so what do we do about that? Do we align? Do we introduce the same one? Well, the UK has got a um, carbon pricing system. I think that what's likely to cause a difficulty on this score is, is the carbon price in the UK has fallen quite a lot of late. So fallen quite a lot below the European right. price. Because obviously if the price were basically the same, then the UK, how it would actually work technically in practice, but in practice it wouldn't really make any much difference. I think what we can see though is, is that the Americans are particularly unhappy about the prospect of 
this would effectively be a carbon tariff. Yeah, a and protectionist measure. What? Yeah, and, and what it shows is that actually that the European Union wants to do the energy transition in a protectionist way mm. too. It's just taken a different way of being protectionist than the United States has through the Inflation Reduction Act. So the Inflation Reduction Act works through basically privileging the countries with which the United States has a free trade agreement. And that primarily, though not exclusively, means Mexico and Canada because of the way the NAFTA's structured. And then it privileges those American allies like Australia, where there's no free trade agreement, but the country concerned has an abundance of metals and minerals that are necessary for the uh, energy. You should transition. explain how that works because it's fascinating and I think it's so geopolitically important in that those some of these Australian industries, as I understand it, will be treated as they US will. domestic industries for the purposes of this act. Absolutely. And, and you could you could see immediately how the UK is going to be desperate to get the same treatment. Can we get into the US system? Can you treat us like a US? Except for the fact we haven't got any minerals to offer. <laughs> or a free trade deal at the moment. <laughs> We're in a bit of a difficult spot. Yeah, but but there's competition between the two different regulatory models there, between the US and the, and the European model. Both are trying to export power in a way, aren't they? They are, but I think that what it's bringing to the fore though is the way in which the energy transition is really compromised the international trading system or the international trading order that was built around the World Trade Organization. Mm. And you could see that in the way in which the Biden uh, administration reacted when the WTO ruled against the United States on the tariffs on steel that Trump introduced, I think going back to 2018, but they take a while to rule on these cases. And essentially the response of the Biden administration was to say the WTO isn't really fit for purpose in the new geopolitical mm -hmm. world, which given that the Biden administration thinks about the energy transition very much geopolitically ties that critique of the World Trade Organization to the energy transition. And each side, and I mean now sides across the Atlantic, the US and the, the European Union is treating what the other's doing in protectionist terms as unacceptable. But the cumulative effects is to move the world away from an, a relatively open world trading order into something that looks more like blocks. Yeah, very clearly. And then people will have, presumably will have to choose between those blocks if they continue mm. to be acting against each other. I, I mean, I think it's a particularly acute choice for the UK in how you act, especially if you have so. something like AUKUS, where you could see how uh, an industrial defense strategy bumps up against a climate change strategy and allies and defense. You know, how do you how do you possibly have all all of those things at the same time? Maybe it's not possible. You could say in the UK's case, the incentive is to try to get an agreement with Australia in relation to metals and minerals too. I just don't think you've got the same incentives to make that happen in the way in which the Americans had to, to make the agreement with which they... Yeah. Do you think there's a chance of an American-EU free trade deal being resurrected to try and, I don't know, resurrect the power of the idea of the West again? And that, that would might be a way to deal with that. I, I think that the difficulty here is that there is really a, a competition that is between the United States and the European Union, as well as between the United States and China. Mm. So although 
there's absolutely no doubt that the Inflation Reduction Act is framed geopolitically against China and to a considerable extent the European Union and the UK is collateral damage yep. in that. And you might even say it's not entirely clear how much thought even went into those questions of the Atlantic relationship and the Inflation Reduction Act. It seems that a lot of the anger in Europe about it took the Biden administration at least partially by surprise because it was so focused on the China question. But I think there is a competition there because if both European Union and individual European countries and the United States are essentially trying to use the energy transition to reshore yes. manufacturing jobs, mm. the chances are that, and China's hardly likely to say, oh, well, we'll freely give away the advantages that we mm. uh, acquired, particularly given the overall state of US-China uh, relations and the technology war aspects of that. It's very difficult to see how everybody can succeed in Western countries reshoring manufacturing jobs. Yeah. The chances are that you're going to bet the Americans are going to do a better job of it. It's going to be easier for them than it is for European. I was going to say, everything you've said makes me think that there's no way that Europe, including the UK, can win a industrial battle against the United States, can it? I mean, they have the, the dollar, they have the technology in California, they have just the economic and military power. I mean, I don't know how you... Well, well, I think the other thing, and this is one of the paradoxes of the energy transition we have to bring in, is is that the energy transition requires fossil fuel energy in order to do it. You need fossil fuel energy in order to manufacture solar panels and wind turbines and stuff forever, around it. Or, Not forever, yeah. but for the, the transition. At least for the transition, however long that transition like turns out to be. And the... Energy costs industrially for the United States are significantly lower, very significantly lower now than they are for the European countries. And that matters, I think, particularly in a context in which the monetary environment is significantly tougher than it was when European countries embarked upon either net zero European um, Green Deal. So back in like 2000, we weren't quite in the peak QE world then. I wouldn't say that we were. There was some, there'd been, you know, the Federal Reserve had started raising uh, interest rates, but the European Central Bank was still in minus uh, negative interest rates yeah. at that point. And that's just a very different monetary environment than the one we are now. So if you add in like the cost of capital is higher, plus the fossil fuel energy costs for doing the energy transition are higher. That makes it significantly tougher than it was. Now, that's true for everybody, mm -hmm. but it's particularly true for Europe, and you could say then for China actually in this respect too, except for the fact that, that China now has a very different oil and gas trading relationship with Russia than most European countries so do, got cheap energy and particularly, well. than, than, particularly than Germany does. So they've got, it got cheaper. I mean, I yeah. mean, it's not, they don't have the fossil fuel energy security that the United States has, but they haven't, like Germany has dismantled its existing energy trade. It's, it's fascinating that actually, contrary to what many of us perhaps have been writing and thinking about, which is sort of the decline of American power, that you can easily see how it could be another American century and that they have so many advantages in a way perhaps that Europe doesn't, you know, and then how Europe has tried to create this world that would be better for it and it has ended up in a world that is just as challenging or certainly still very challenging 
for it. I mean, it, it does it it does make me think about Europe going all the way back to its very beginnings. What we have today as the European Union started out as the European coal and steel community. So from the beginning, Europe has been focused on this challenge of, you know, the the base of your industrial power and effectively ensuring France and Germany aren't going to war over it. But it's been a part of Europe's question from the beginning. So it'd be fascinating to see how how this starts to play out within Europe as well, as it's as it takes on China, as it perhaps loses this solar power. Well, it's already lost it, I would say, in the solar panels. Oh, right. So it's, <laughs> so it's lost that and it's potentially going to lose the industrial battle with uh, with the United States. And then it's put this ring around itself, this carbon uh, border to try and protect itself, to try and uh, reshore industrial capacity into Europe. But can it work as an entire European continent? Is that going to be possible? Because I think in some of your work, you've been showing how Europe is connected in different regional blocks within Europe. Well, I think there's multiple things in what you've just said there, Tom. I think that there's no doubt that if we look at this in terms of European unity, that there is a way of framing what is happening around electrification. I mean by that, the replacement of what oil and gas do outside the generation of electricity, which is particularly obviously um, gas and coal really rather than oil. But what I mean by electrification is taking things that were previously fueled by primary energy, so let's say like driving cars Mm. and electrifying it or heating houses. Yeah, heating, yeah. And if you say we're going to need so much more electricity in order to do electrification, and we want that electricity to be decarbonized electricity, then you can see, a, at least in principle, an, a new driving idea of European unity, which is to yeah. say, let's create a unified electricity market yeah. uh, in Europe, and let's have lots of interconnectors that can move electricity from one place to another. And here you might say that, in principle, Europe's geography works really quite favourably because the distances in terms of connecting different states up to each other. Densely populated, relatively small continent. Absolutely. And then you can put that in a history, which you've already gone back to, which would be, look, the energy component of the European project has been there right from the start. And it's been there both in terms of the internal relations between European states so that the coal and steel community was at its heart, as you said, a peace project between mm-hmm. like France and Germany. That If you go and look in the 19th century, particularly from the point of Germ- creation of the, the German state like in 1870, you've got this fundamental problem for uh, France that the coal is pri- primarily in German side yep. of the Rhine. The iron deposits are actually... On the other side, that's partly why Alsace-Lorraine is like fought over in the way in which it is right from 1870 all the way through the Franco-Prussian War, all the way through to the, the Second World War. And what you're doing by creating that coal and steel community is effectively pooling those coal resources. You're also giving Italy that hasn't got coal an opportunity in this respect. And that's a peace project. It's like saying if, if these two states, France and Germany, don't have to go to war over coal and iron deposits, then they can be the basis of of European peace. It's also why we didn't go in, yeah, because we had our own coal deposits exactly. and we just nationalised them. It's not a problem for us and in, 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 at all in the, in, the, in the same way. If you then go to 1957 and the agreement 
the Treaty of Rome, mm. two component parts, European Economic Community, which I think actually does have a partial oil motive to it. We didn't necessarily get into that. But the European Atomic Energy Community yeah. is the counterpart. It's like, we're going to do atomic energy together. Mm. And again, that has a pretty clear like rationale, which is comparable, I would say, to what's going on now, which is Europe's got uh, a resource problem in being too dependent upon the outside world for oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, gas being less significant at that point. It comes in the aftermath of the Suez crisis where the problems of dependency on the Middle East are shown very clearly, particularly the Americans' ability to veto what a European state can do in dealing with the problem. Back to competition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's saying like we need to escape this geopolitical vulnerability that we have that comes from our energy situation. And if you go back to the hopes that were invested in the atomic energy at that time in, in Europe, they're almost utopian yeah. in the sense is we can we can basically reinvent Europe as a geopolitical power again once we have our own energy yeah. source. It runs into many issues, one of which obviously is that you have to get the uranium from somewhere else in the world, including buying it enriched from the United States that by the time we get to the end of the 70s that Carter is stopping that. Yeah. And that is, I think, part of the story of why Germany turns away from nuclear power. So it doesn't turn out to be a panacea, but it does show how central energy is yeah. to the very idea of European unity and the very idea that you can use a collective project of bringing Europeans together to change Europe's geopolitical position in relation to energy. I know. I mean, listening to you there, it's like putting on some glasses and suddenly seeing clearly something that looked so different before. So if you see it through the eyes of energy, then everything changes and you go, oh, that explains so many of these different things and these motivations. But as you say, you can see now that how it could drive Europe together. You have an energy market it's a, it's a new drive for unity, and then you put a border around it uh, to protect yourself. And that's a unifying strategy, perhaps. But then it runs in again, doesn't it? In a similar way to the atomic energy, it runs into reality and uh, geographical constraints and the fact that you have to have these interconnectors to other parts of the world. Uh, autarky is never... Uh, very easy to to, to, to no, find. I think there are certain things that you can run a story around, like the parallel between the customs union that was part of the Treaty of Rome. And I think actually that's particularly important in terms of the French hope that Algerian oil would be a, a pretty important part of the, the European project. And that turned out not really to be the case because of the fact that by 1962, Algeria had its independence but that, that idea that you have internal European unity or West European unity as it then was, and then you have an external border with yep. the rest um, of the the world. I think that you can see where this electricity issue is concerned, that it has the potential to, to be quite unifying, including mm. in the idea of Europe in a geographical sense, i.e. including the United Kingdom and Norway. Right. In that. So you're not um, unifying for the EU, but you're, you're unifying for Europe. Unifying for Europe and that the EU can try and put itself like at the centre mm-hmm. of that, including by providing financing for some new electricity interconnectors. And there's no doubt that there are people 
I think, within the European Commission who would frame electricity as the new unifying peace project, if you like, Mm -hmm. in Europe. I think the complications are that, that actually it also divides Europe geographically into so you have a, a group of countries mm. on the western side of the continent, particularly around the North Sea, where there's actually quite a lot of interconnectors. But that's not so much use if you're on the eastern side of the the continent. So if we look at the interconnectors, where that they go at the the moment, they also include, as you've already sort of suggested, Tom. I mean, there's two that run between Morocco and Spain. There's quite a lot of momentum building up to build one which might involve European Union money between Egypt and Greece. Mm. So it actually involves for the southern European countries, North Africa, very much in proceedings. And then for those in around the North Sea, it involves the United Kingdom. Yeah. I mean, there is the one between UK and Denmark is due to open next year i think the building's complete but there's also one being built between the uk and germany and interestingly the decision to go ahead with that is a post-brexit decision yeah. so it, it has the realities of electricity and who can be connected with who within affordable yeah distance reasonable yeah distance matters and then distance creates perhaps smaller blocks within the europe as a whole as well as creating links between europe and other continents again you start looking at a map don't you and thinking okay if you were greece in this world it feels quite different to whether you're belgium absolutely and how you think about who your partners are and what your relationship with britain is or with north africa or with um israel or or turkey or any of these countries on the periphery spain in particular you can almost see like it's, it's almost like a different world you know uh, beyond the Pyrenees and their relationship with Morocco is going to be absolutely crucial, particularly, but in particular if Morocco is able to develop solar panels and export electricity from there. And so, yeah, you could see how it can be used as a unifying project for the European Union, but you could also see how it could start pulling it at it in different ways, pulling Northwestern Europe towards the UK and, and, and you know, the UK towards Europe. Mm-hmm. It's going to probably define the, the relationships all along the border here for decades. I think though there's long one last issue though here that we should bring up because whilst creating unified uh, or creating a set of electricity interconnectors can be unifying or by in this complicated way for the, what the European Union itself is that if we look at the issue of how decarbonized electricity is being pursued in different European countries, particularly the two most powerful within the European Union, France and Germany, we mm. can see like profound difference. Yeah. Because Germany's brought nuclear power to an end. France has nuclear power already um, at the center of its electricity yep. um, system and is committed to, to use Macron's language, in a nuclear rena- renaissance, really doubling down on its um, nuclear position. And that makes it really difficult for the European uh, Union to have a, a collective strategy about decarbonized electricity, including even just at the basic level when you then say what resources are required for it because France's preoccupation where resources concerned is uranium, particularly after the coup in Niger where yeah. presently it'd been getting 25% of its uranium from. It needs, it's looking for new partners. Macron's been in Kazakhstan, I think it Mm. It, it was. But if you're Germany and you're committed to making wind and solar work, 
as the centerpiece of your electricity system, that's about a different set of resources that have got to be procured. And you can actually see this to bring it all the way back to the start at the COP28 summit in Dubai, where I think it was announced yesterday or overnight that 22 of the countries have come together to agree to double the use of nuclear power over the next, I, d- I don't know the exact time frame. And you can see on the picture that there's Britain and France right in the middle of the, the flags flying and Germany is nowhere to be seen. So again, you've got, I mean, maybe there's a grand compromise that can be made between Germany and France that can be beneficial for the whole of Europe if you can somehow combine the two. I, I don't know, but it certainly suggests that the European Union will have a challenge to try and in terms of priorities and between the relationships that you need to make those industrial choices work. Absolutely. And then if you think about Russia in relation to this, Russia still really matters where nuclear power uh, is concerned, both in terms of construction of reactors and in terms of enriched uranium. That is why there are no sanctions on Russia where nuclear power is concerned, even for the Americans that buy enriched uranium in some quantity from Russia. And what we can see, and this is where the geopolitics of energy, I think, replicates some other tensions within the European Union, is that the East European countries led by Poland, it's Poland, Czech Republic and Slovakia, that are very keen on moving in a nuclear direction, are very much looking to the United States. And the United States has been embracing that. So John Kerry, the US climate are announced a new project for these East European states called Project Phoenix a few months ago. But you can't see that when Macron's talking about France having nuclear reactors and trying to push the European Union more in that direction, that his idea is going to be, oh, let's make ourselves more dependent upon the Americans in doing it. <laughs> no, and I'll be, I, I mean, I, I'll admit, I didn't, I didn't have a clue that that was what was happening under the under the surface. I mean, it's utterly fascinating. Helen, I think it's been a, a tour de force from you and I've learned a lot. I mean, we're going to have to come back mm. to net zero multiple times. It's fascinating yeah. what it will happen in the UK, on, on the United States. Well, I think we should come back, shouldn't we? Because we haven't really talked about this at all, this episode. We should come back relatively soon to the issue of how this works in democratic politics. Absolutely, I, absolutely Not crucial. Not least in the United Kingdom. Great. If you like that episode as much as we did recording it, please follow and share with your family and friends. See you next week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.